This Choircast podcast episode is brought to you by The Reconstructionist by Jonathan J. Foster. With so much changing in our society around sexuality, authority, patriarchy, religion, truth, and more, what we need is a book to help us navigate those changes while keeping love at the forefront. The Reconstructionist is that kind of book. Pick a copy up today on Amazon or any other fine digital retailer. The Reconstructionist, people greater than text, mercy greater than sacrifice, and love greater than fear. My name is Matthew J. DiStefano. I'm an author, a columnist for Pathios, a podcaster, social worker, a musician, and the best part of waking up, other than like a thousand things that I can think of, is listening to Keith over a second cup. Hello and welcome back to Second Cup with Keith. I am your host, Keith Giles. And in this episode, um, I had promised in at the end of the previous episode that I would spend some time talking about the Gospel of Thomas. And so uh, that's what we're going to do in this episode. Some of you may already be subscribing to my weekly uh, Inner Circle series of blogs. So every week I publish a new article that looks at one of the sayings of Jesus from the Gospel of Thomas and goes over what it says and what it means. And um, some of you may not be. If you would like to join that, you can sign up on my Patreon, patreon.com slash Keith Giles, or you can also go to my Pathos blog, click on any of the posts that say Inner Circle, and you'll be prompted to subscribe uh, through Pathos. So for this podcast, I thought what I would do is just give a little bit of a background on the Gospel of Thomas. What is it? Where did it come from? Why? Should we take it seriously? Why am I devoting, um, you know, myself to writing uh, one <laughs> one weekly article until I finish all of these articles from the uh, all of these sayings of Jesus from the Gospel of Thomas? And what is significant, if anything, about the Gospel of Thomas? So, um, to begin with, let's talk about what the Gospel of Thomas is and where it came from. So. Um, Around the turn of the 20th century in Egypt, there were three separate papyrus fragments uncovered, which included sayings of Jesus in Greek. Now, at the time, they were those fragments were just called unknown gospels because they contained sayings of Jesus, supposedly, um, but we couldn't tie them to any of the sayings of Jesus from the, uh, the known gospels, the synoptic gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, or the Gospel of John. That was until... 1945, when another much larger collection of writings was discovered, also in Egypt, near Nag Hammadi, and they're called the Nag Hammadi documents. Um, and scholars at that point realized that what they really had were two copies, uh, one of them one of them in fragments, but one of them complete, or nearly complete, uh, two copies of the Gospel of Thomas. And so this text in addition to all of the other texts in the Nag Hammadi, we'll talk about that in a second, but, but specifically um, the Gospel of Thomas uh, has been lost to us. It was completely lost until it was discovered um, in 1945. And those two discoveries brought the Gospel of Thomas literally and figuratively into the light. So in addition to providing insight into the beliefs of a small religious community of non-Orthodox believers from that period, the Gospel of Thomas 
also gave us roughly 70 additional sayings of Jesus that were not known to us through the New Testament Gospels of Matthew, Mark, Luke, or John. And so along with the Gospel of Thomas, that Nagamati discovery in 1945 um, contained a variety of texts. Now, most of these were Gnostic or proto-Gnostic. I'll explain that term in a second. Uh, Jewish and Hermetic texts. Uh, There was also a copy of a fragment of Plato's Republic, which that will become significant a little bit later. So keep that in mind. Don't forget that. Plato's Republic, a copy of that, a fragment of that. Um, And an additional 40 other writings out of a total of 52. um, 40 writings were previously unknown to scholars. So this was just a treasure trove of ancient scriptures and texts uh, Christian texts that mostly <laughs> that were lost to us. So, um, in addition to the Gospel of Thomas, the Nagamati discovery also included copies of the Gospel of Philip uh, and the Apocryphon of John, and also something called the Gospel of Truth, which is a really remarkable uh, text. Uh, at any rate, um, the most startling of the new writings was by far, at least in my opinion, this one solitary copy of a near-complete Gospel of Thomas. And this is something that no one had ever seen before until around, you know, the mid-4th century, when it was originally buried and hidden. So based on a few clues, uh, including some letters found along with the text, um, scholars date the Gospel of Thomas that we have from Nagamati to around the mid-4th century. So um, now we can't determine the original authorship uh, by the same method. It only means that that uh, this was around the time the writings were collected and, uh, and hidden, right? So the original writings would obviously date before that, but how far back is the question. So um, the earlier discovery that I mentioned of the fragments of the Gospel of Thomas, those were dated to between 200 and 250 AD. And so by comparison, we can tell that these texts were known and were copied just prior to those dates. So it's earlier than 200 or 250 AD. That puts it pretty early in the development of the early Christian church. Some of the early church fathers even made references to the Gospel of Thomas, and but since none of them ever really quoted directly from it, um, we can't be 100% sure that they were talking about the same Gospel of Thomas that we currently have a copy of. So, still, however, notable Christian thinkers from Origen, uh, Hippolytus, Eusebius of Caesarea, um, they all made mention of the Gospel of Thomas and mostly referred to it as heretical or foolish. And we're going to talk a little bit more about why they thought that. But assuming that they were talking about the same Gospel of Thomas, the same collection of the sayings of Jesus that we found and translated today, then the Gospel of Thomas seems to have been misunderstood and devalued and dismissed by the early church in favor of the four uh, canonical Gospels, the New Testament Gospels that we have. Now, oddly enough, there seems to have been a desire among those early church fathers to only have four. So this is strange, but as if there was something special or even magical about the number, four, uh, or as if God only wanted four, uh, some of the early church fathers made an argument that, well, because there's four directions on the compass or four quarters and a whole number or whatever, the argument was made that there should be four and only four, which, of course, seems extremely arbitrary. 
they didn't do the same for the, the, the letters of Paul, right, or anything else. But uh, what sets the Gospel of Thomas apart from any other gospel is that it doesn't contain any stories about Jesus. It doesn't mention the birth of Jesus, doesn't mention the uh, arrest and crucifixion of Jesus, doesn't mention the resurrection of Jesus, and it doesn't, doesn't really talk about sort of the second coming or make any predictions about the second coming of Jesus. It is really simply only a collection of the sayings of Jesus. Now, half of those sayings we do have in the four canonical Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. But the other half are brand new. So another feature of the Gospel of Thomas is that these sayings appear to have really no intended flow or order to link them together. So in other words, one saying, you can read it, and then when you read the next one, it's, it has no reference or connection to any of the other sayings, for the most part. There's a couple that seem that they were kind of placed side by side for a reason, but for the vast majority of them, they are just a series of disconnected sayings of Jesus, just as if someone were following Jesus around, and whenever he said something or taught something, they just wrote down what he said, right? But that's, that's also an interesting detail of the Gospel of Thomas. So now in a very strict sense, because of these, you know, because, because of these things, the Gospel of Thomas is not really, quote unquote, a gospel, really at all, at least not in comparison to the other gospels, right? Which include a narrative, miracles, uh, theological doctrines are combined to, to paint a certain picture of Jesus and his purpose and mission and, and um, things like that, and, and to connect him to being his identity as the Son of God or God the Son, etc. Many people tend to call Thomas a Gnostic gospel, but I, I do not agree with that. Um, Elaine Pagels and other scholars uh, have also said that Thomas should not be considered a Gnostic text because it does not advance any specific theological arguments, um, none that align with any Gnostic teachings found in other Gnostic texts. So it's not really, truly a Gnostic text. Thomas also contains no references to any of the miracles of Jesus. Right, um, and as we said, n nothing about the crucifixion or the resurrection or the, even the future, you know, coming of Jesus. And this is this is an important detail. As I said, we want to return to this later on, but keep that in mind. But think about this: it took until it was discovered in 1945, but it took until 1954 for the Gospel of Thomas to finally be translated from an Egyptian Coptic uh, language into the English language. And now that's when the fun really began. And if you think about it, someone I was talking about just uh, recently about the Gospel of Thomas, who was a scholar, he said, you know, we have almost 2,000 years of commentary um, on all the other Gospels and, and uh, on the, all the letters of Paul and things like that. But we really, uh, the Gospel of Thomas, the, the commentary is only, what, 50 years old or something, 60 years old. So it's very, very new when it comes to uh, scholars examining Thomas and the other Nagamati texts to really dig down deep and understand them. So we this is brand new for us. So um, before we go too much further, I, uh, let's talk a little bit about some theories about the text, okay? So um, some scholars, and those you may not know these names, but if you're curious, uh, people like Stephen Patterson, Helmut Koster, uh, Stephen Davies, 
and others have suggested that the Gospel of Thomas could predate the four canonical Gospels that we have, or at least have been composed around the same time frame as Mark and Matthew or Luke. Now, this is significant because if that's true, then the Gospel of Thomas might be either the fabled, now this is maybe stretching it for some of you, the Q document. Um, that New Testament scholars have been searching for. But at the very least, Thomas is an example of a type of a Q document that must have been circulating around the early 1st or late 2nd century. So what is a Q document? Well, if you're not sure what I mean by that, a Q document is this theory that New Testament scholars have that, uh, especially concerning the Gospels, that there must have been a collection of sayings of Jesus that the Gospel writers, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, must have referred to when they sat down to write their Gospels, because um, many of the quotations of Jesus from Matthew, Mark, and Luke are verbatim. They're the same. Um, and so we, you know, some scholars think that, well, maybe they all copied Mark, but Matthew expands on some of them. Luke uh, also treats them a little differently. And so because of that, they th- there is this strong theory that there is the possibility that they either used Thomas as a Q document meaning it's just the document that was a collection of sayings, that they then took those sayings and put them into their, their Gospels. But again, it's a, if nothing else, it is a it proves that such a thing existed. It proves that there was an early collection of the sayings of Jesus that was just a collection of the sayings of Jesus, right? So that's significant. That's a very, very significant uh, find. So Thomas is important, if nothing else, just for that reason. And I want to say on a personal level, the first time I read through the Gospel of Thomas, and this was like five or six years ago, I was just really curious. And so I, I, I downloaded it off the internet. You can do the same thing. You can download the sayings of Jesus from Thomas. You can just search Google the Gospel of Thomas. You can find it, copy, paste it into Word document or put it in your phone or whatever. Read it at your leisure. And that's what I did. And the first time I read it, I thought it was completely ridiculous, that it was worthless. And that, and in my opinion, there was no possible way that any of this was anything Jesus actually said. Now, uh, my opinion would probably would not have changed about Thomas if it wasn't for a book that I came across. And this book radically changed my mind. It really just the uh, it, it it cracked the code and and flicked over the switch in my head. So the book is uh, a book by a guy named William G. Duffy, William George Duffy. Uh, it's called The Hidden Gospel of Thomas. And actually, someone sent it to me, and I was reading it on an airplane once, uh, I guess maybe about a year and a half ago, and it blew my mind. And it really helped turn on the lights for me and really convinced me I needed to go back and take another look at the Gospel of Thomas. I should also mention, just this week, I had a conversation uh, with the author, uh, William Duffy, and we had a wonderful conversation uh, about Thomas and about his book, and I was able to at least thank him for helping me understand and crack the code for Thomas. So, um, so uh, you know, in this series that I'm doing, this Inner Circle uh, series that I'm writing, this subscription series I'm writing every week, I do um, I do give a nod to Duffy's book, uh, and I'm very appreciative of his work. But I'm I'm actually going out of my way not to refer to his notes, so um, I am completely just, you know, covering the saying, talking about the saying, and then pulling in my own ideas and thoughts 
and other sources. So whether that's the New Testament or quantum physics or spiritual writings like Black Elk or Richard Rohr or Rumi or whoever. Uh, and that's that's really the tack I've been taking uh, in my Inner Circle series. So anyway, um, what really helped me, as I said, what Duffy's book really did help me the most, though, was as a, decoding the text and helping me understand what is going on. And so, uh, again, huge thanks to Duffy and his book. So, I, I guess, well, let me. I guess I'm going to talk about since I already opened the can of worms here, how he helped me crack the code. So, um, Duffy uh, mentions at the introduction of his book that he believes that the uh, that all of the sayings of Thomas are about Jesus is speaking about um, the illusion of separation. And all of the sayings are about non-dualism. Now, that sounds simple, but um, I think if you can read it through that filter, it does make sense. And so uh, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to read to you a little passage from Duffy's book, and this is what helped me understand it, right? So he, he quotes um, the saying number seven from the Gospel of Thomas that Jesus reads. And by the way, I'm going to read this to you, and you're going to see what I mean. It's going to sound completely nonsensical. You're, you're going to think, this is stupid. But stick with me, because it's going to get really cool really fast. Okay, so in the saying number seven of Jesus from the Gospel of Thomas, Jesus says, Blessed is the lion that becomes a man when consumed by man, and cursed is the man whom the lion consumes, and the man becomes a lion. Okay, now the first time I read that, I just thought, this is ridiculous. It makes no sense. It's stupid. But if we do reread this saying through Duffy's suggested filter of non-duality, we discover some really astounding truths. So, first of all, in this saying of Jesus, the man and the lion are not literal, right? The man refers to the true man, the true person within each of us, our true self, okay? And the lion here is a metaphor for the ego, the false self. So we might call that the ego right today, but it's our false self. And the lion of our ego fights to be in control, and it devours its enemies, and it, and it accepts this false notion of an us and them reality, right? But the man, the true man of our true self, recognizes the illusion of duality and knows that the truth is found uh, in the reality that we're not separate from God or, or one another. We are one with the source. We are one with Christ and with and therefore with everything. So Jesus is telling us, if we understand these metaphors, that when our ego, oh, that's the lion, which is driven by fear, is consumed, it becomes subdued by the peaceful, free and innocent, true self, which finally realizes its own oneness with everything and everyone. Right? So you can say, okay, well, that's sure. I mean, so what? I mean, how do you... How do you prove that that's what Jesus was thinking of when he said that? Well, what's funny is in Plato's Republic, the mind is represented by three metaphors, the man, the lion, and the chimera, or a many-headed beast. And Plato explains the lion and the many-headed beast are both metaphors for mankind's lower nature, right? Or the ego. And the man is a metaphor for our higher selves or our true self, right? So you can say, okay, so what? So Plato thinks that, but what does Plato have to do with Thomas? Well, do you remember at the beginning I mentioned that a fragment of Plato's Republic was found in the very same collection as the Gospel of Thomas? 
1945? Right. Now, can you guess which section of Plato's Republic was found as a fragment alongside Thomas's Gospel? Yes, it was the exact section of Plato's Republic which explains this metaphor of lion, man, and many-headed beast. That's the key. And the key, which is right there in Plato's Republic, uh, that decodes saying seven, helps us decode the rest of it. Because, Because now we know that that's what Jesus is talking about in saying seven, the true man and the ego, and how the true man is the one who sees that there is no separation, but we're all one. If we get that, everything else in Thomas makes so much more sense. So I just found that amazing. And, that, and then, so now going back and rereading Thomas, I'm like, you know what? Uh, I absolutely am convinced that this is correct. So, you know, before we go too much further, I want to also, also caution you, you know, as if you decide to read through Thomas, don't compare the Jesus that you find in Thomas with the one that you have come to know and love in the Gospels of the New Testament. Um, I mean, it's possible, of course, that, the, that it, it's the same kind of Jesus. It's the same Jesus that, that is quoted in Thomas that we see in the other Gospels, but it's he is represented slightly differently in Thomas than he is in the other Gospels. So, yes, the Jesus we find in Thomas has a very important message for us about non-duality and the illusion of separation. And he does have a certain perspective on things like the kingdom of God, which which in the Gospel of Thomas, Jesus speaks about quite often. And when he does talk about the kingdom of God, he does talk about the kingdom of God the same way that he talks about the kingdom of God in Matthew, Mark, and Luke, or John, right? The kingdom of God is within you. The kingdom of God is not here or there or coming soon. It's 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 within you, right? It's, it's the true reality that we're all immersed in. So, now, does, so does it mean that it's not the same Jesus? Well, we don't know. If if Thomas, for example, was a Q document that was used by other canonical gospel writers, then those writers took those sayings, at least in theory, or at least some of them, again, we only, we only took half of them, and recontextualized them into a theological narrative that fit their own perceived belief systems, right? So it's, it's in other words, it's entirely possible, not not proven, but it's possible that these sayings of Thomas are true sayings of the actual Jesus, but without the narrative and theological story or framework that we've become accustomed to hearing. And so, therefore, the meaning of those sayings might have been misunderstood or lost or even repurposed. So it's possible, again, possible, that this Jesus we encounter in Thomas's gospel is a different one entirely, yes, but... At the end of the day, we're left to decide for ourselves which of these might be the real Jesus and which might be the false one. And I can't decide that for you. I, I'm still in the process myself of trying to understand what I think is legitimately Jesus and what may or may not be commentary, whether that's from Matthew, Mark, and Luke, and John, or whether that's from the author of Thomas. At this point, I'm still trying to figure it out. But what I'm trying to do in my series is to share those new sayings of Jesus that we see in the Gospel of Thomas, and then using this filter of non-duality and the illusion of separation, try to decode this, try to understand if it was Jesus, what was what was the message that Jesus wanted us 
you know, to understand, to take, to take away from it. So um, I'm going to talk a little bit now about some of the arguments for the early date of Thomas. Again, scholars, as with the New Testament, as with the rest of the Bible, scholars are not in agreement. That's sort of the nature of the game. There are groups of scholars that believe one thing, and there are groups of scholars that believe something different, and they have their reasons, and they debate it. And at the end of the day, we all we can do is sort of say, well, I think I, believe, I agree with these people, or I think I agree with these other people. Um, but there are some scholars who believe that the Gospel of Thomas, as I said, predates the Gospels of Mark, Matthew, and Luke, or at least were written around the same time. So why is that? Well, again, because the Gospel of Thomas and the, and the Q document, which is something that has been theorized to exist, we have not found the actual Q document, but of course we have found Thomas, which is a type of Q document. Right? So they are, they're both examples of the same sort of early Christian writings, which were just collected sayings of Jesus, and, and by, written by the disciples of Jesus, and for those who wanted to be followers of Jesus, who wanted to take his sayings to heart. So, this alone sets Thomas and the Q document apart from later Christian literature, which attempted to construct a narrative story around those sayings, to provide perhaps some context or meaning to those sayings, right? To make it more interesting. And so, this later development... So, again, understand, whether Thomas predates Matthew, Mark, and Luke or not... John, of course, being the much, much, much later gospel. But whether Thomas predates Matthew, Mark, and Luke or not, Q-type documents, collected sayings of Jesus without narratives, without theology, without doctrines, did exist. Okay? And so, the doctrines and the stories came later. Those were added later. And so, this later development is when we start to notice a more systematic theology kind of creeping in around the things of Jesus and being incorporated into stories about Jesus, which, by the way, are not all in agreement. I mean, sorry to shock you here, but the Gospel of Mark and the Gospel of Luke and the Gospel of Matthew and the Gospel of John do not agree. We're fairly sure they were aware of each other, and most of them made no attempt to align themselves with or to agree with those other Gospels. It's almost as if Matthew says, yeah, 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 I've read Mark, but let me tell you how it really happened. Or Luke says, yeah, yeah, Matthew and Mark, sure, but let me tell you how it really happened. And the Gospel of John is like, yeah, I read all three of those books, forget that, let me tell you, here's the story the way it should be told. So all of the, all four of the Gospels, some of them might be close in some, in some areas, but they wildly diverge in other details and, you know, parts of the story. Uh, you know, Luke and Matthew, the order is completely jumbled. Uh, when when did it happen, right? When did Jesus go here? When did he go there? When did he say that? When did he say this? So there is uh, not as much agreement as we might have been told that there was, right? So, um, yeah, so even the Gnostic texts from the second century, truly Gnostic texts, so again, Thomas not really being a true Gnostic text, uh, other Gnostic texts from the second century had much greater theological content than what we find in Thomas or like in a collection of sayings like the Q document. So again, if these scholars are right in theorizing that Thomas predates Mark, Matthew, and Luke, then we need to think about something. Uh, there's some things to consider. First, 
that this collection of sayings from the Gospel of Thomas are indeed, possibly, accurate transcriptions of things Jesus actually taught. Or at the very least, they are as accurate as anything we find in those other New Testament Gospels. Why do I say that? Well, simply because half of the sayings of Thomas are already found in Mark, Matthew, and Luke. So there is no disagreement, at least on half of those sayings of Thomas. Thomas records what Jesus says, and it's copied or repeated by Mark, Matthew, and Luke. So there is no disagreement, at least on half of Thomas, right? So I think there's a strong case. Again, scholars disagree. But Thomas did not copy his sayings of Jesus from Matthew, Mark, and Luke. If anything, those other later gospel writers copied their sayings of Jesus from Thomas or from another Q-type document of sayings dated around the same time frame. Uh, I think there's a there's at least a possibility that that is what happened. Um, but it's also, let me just say too, to be fair, there's a chance that's not what happened, right? But um, if so, then it means that those other sayings of Jesus found in the Gospel of Thomas are also authentic, meaning the, the half that we see in Matthew, Mark, and Luke, we can't dispute their authenticity. So would why would we, what would be the reason to doubt the authenticity of the other half of those sayings that are unique to Thomas, right? So we should ask ourselves some questions like, why didn't those other gospel writers incorporate all of the sayings of Jesus that we found in Thomas? Why did they only choose half? Why did they leave out the other sayings? We might also ask ourselves, what if those other gospel writers copied the sayings of Jesus from Thomas without fully understanding the context or the meaning of what Jesus was trying to communicate? and then dropped those sayings into stories and narratives that changed or at least altered or obscured the true meaning of what Jesus was trying to say. So again, for me, that is a big question. Uh, I don't know. I can't help but wonder if Mark, Matthew, and Luke didn't construct a narrative around a half of the sayings of Jesus in order to tell a story without fully recognizing what Jesus was really trying to get at. That's possible, at least, to me. But perhaps the original meaning of some of these things was quite unintentionally obscured, right? By by taking the saying, which you think you know what it means, and you put it into another, you know, more literal and a less nuanced uh, direction, then it will change the meaning of that saying. Now, again, I understand this is total speculation. I know. There's not much we can hold on to when it comes to which came first, who copied who, uh, what meanings may have been clouded by the other authors, if anything. Maybe maybe there is no misunderstanding. But if we start by assuming, just for the, for the moment, that Thomas's collected sayings of Jesus came first, um, or at least around the same time, if we believe later authors applied those sayings in ways that blurred the teachings, if we believe that, we'll arrive at one set of conclusions about those things. But if we start by assuming that Thomas came later, well, then we'll conclude that those new sayings were added to all the others. And that leaves us with a with another question. So, for example, if that last example is true, if, um, if somebody, uh, after Matthew, Mark, and Luke are already written, someone comes along, just pulls half of the sayings from Matthew, Mark, and Luke, and then adds another set of sayings to that, right? Why? Why would anybody do that? Why would they add new sayings to a list of known teachings of Jesus from Matthew, Mark, and Luke 
without attempting to explain why they were doing so. In other words, if the goal of the Gospel of Thomas was to suggest a different version of the Gospel found in the Matthew, Mark, and Luke, why not go all the way and actually provide a counter-narrative to challenge those other Gospels? I mean, think about it. Wouldn't it defeat the purpose to leave out those details if that was your goal? Other Gnostic writings, by the way, do that. They actually do exactly that. They do suggest another narrative. If you go and read the Gospel of Judas or Philip or even Mary Magdalene's Gospel, they have um, different, Jesus saying different things to different people, doing things at different times, contradicting things that are in the Synoptic Gospels. And why are they doing that? Because they are aware of Matthew, Mark, and Luke, and probably John. Um, and they want to write a counter-narrative, and so they do. But Thomas doesn't do that. Instead, the Gospel of Thomas only gives us a long list of sayings of Jesus without doctrines or explanation or instruction. We're just given a collection of wisdom without context, without theological framework, without a counter-narrative. And so, again, just to me at least, this suggests that the Gospel of Thomas is indeed an example of an earlier pre-synoptic collection of sayings of Jesus. Without any agenda to debunk, it's not trying to debunk the teachings of Jesus in Matthew, Mark, and Luke, because uh, if nothing else, even if those Gospels did exist, they, the author of uh, the Gospel of Thomas doesn't know about them. He's not trying to contradict them. So in other words, the Gospel of Thomas doesn't seem to feel the need to correct any conflicting versions of Jesus' teachings because, at least at the time it was compiled, there's a good chance the author wasn't aware of those versions of Jesus. There was nothing to compare anything to. Now, if we go along again with this assumption, and again, I do know it's an assumption, but if we go along with the assumption that Thomas was compiled by uh, compiled merely as a collection of sayings of Jesus, and if this collection of the sayings of Jesus contained additional teachings that we don't find in the later Gospels, and if these sayings are trying to tell us something deeper and more profound than what some of those other Gospel authors understood, then we've got some digging to do and some thinking to do. So now, again, please, I again, I understand all this is supposition, uh, because, again, we've only had a copy of the Gospel of Thomas since 1945, uh, and uh, only in English translations since 1954. There is not a whole lot of scholarship that's been done, um, and kind of it's being done now, actually. So, um, you know, as I said earlier, there um, there are some connections of the sayings of Thomas to the writings of Plato um, that helps shed some light on some of the possible meanings of the words of Jesus. Again, assuming they are the words of Jesus. And so, you know, if we can suspend some of our disbelief, and take an opportunity to just, for a moment, say, what if, right? Just say, okay, what if the Gospel of Thomas does contain some hidden wisdom taught by Jesus that could maybe help us understand more of who God is and who we are and what our place in the universe might be? So, um, again, I'm convinced that the simple code for un- unlocking Thomas's Gospel seems to be this message, a single message, really, that's consistent throughout all the sayings of Jesus. It is essentially this, that the idea of separation from God and one another is an illusion, uh, that uh, 
non-duality uh, is is reality. Um, there is no such thing as separation, and uh, we are all one with God and with the divine. And and if we if we accept that, then everything else. I believe will fall into place as we move forward looking at the Gospel of Thomas. And again, I'm now, I think, on saying 25 or 26 or something like that. So um, I've been going at this for quite a while, right? Um, and it's been fun, you know? Um, it's been it's been a lot of fun. I do at least think that, you know, this idea of, well, I guess I should say something about that. You know, sometimes people get nervous about the idea that um, uh, the idea that Jesus had some secret teachings, right? Like they are like, you know, I, I don't, I don't know how I feel about that, right? Like that Jesus had hidden or sort of secret teachings, you know. But actually, there is some evidence uh, in in the Gospels, even in the Synoptic Gospels of Matthew, Mark, and Luke that, well, that maybe Jesus really did have some secret teachings, right? Um, and again, he talked about how, you know, he spoke in parables to the crowd, but to his disciples, uh, he spoke plainly. Uh, that's one example. And we have examples also that Paul uh, says the same thing. Paul says that, um, you know, there are things that he knows and things that he, he has seen that are not fit to speak, you know, out loud to other people, but to, to some of his disciples, he does make these things known. And this idea as well of non-duality and the illusion of separation, um, this is not some sort of a, like an extra-biblical concept that we don't find in, in, even in the Gospels, because we do find it. We do find Jesus saying things like, I am in the Father, and the Father is in me, and I am in you. And uh, if you abide in me, I will abide in you. Uh, and the Father and I will come and make our home in you. And, um, you know, that whatever you've done to the least of these, you've done it to me, etc. And so, you know, Jesus does talk this way. Um, Paul does too. Paul says um, several times, and I've quoted this many times in this podcast, right? The, these ideas of um, how Paul says in Ephesians, you know, we are filled with the fullness uh, of Christ. Uh, Colossians says we are filled with the fullness of him who fills everything in every way. And so... These ideas are, it seems that they did come from Jesus. They were affirmed by Jesus. They were affirmed by Paul and the early church. And so it isn't outside the realm of possibility that when we read the Gospel of Thomas, um, that we really are reading this idea, uh, ideas that came from Jesus, from the sayings of Jesus, from the teachings of Jesus. Things that were passed on to Paul, that Paul passed on to his disciples. Uh, I don't have time probably to go into this, but in, in my inner circle, I've talked about uh, some really fascinating parallels in the writings of Paul and even in the Gospel of John that compare to the Gospel of Thomas and that even make it very likely. In fact, scholars have done some really fascinating work on this to show that the, the Gospel of John, the author of the Gospel of John, most likely had read the Gospel of Thomas because it seems on purpose that the author of the Gospel of John is going out of his way to provide some commentary or some uh, re rebuttal or a response or reaction to some of the things that are in Thomas. So that's really fascinating. But in Galatians, like a lot of a lot of um, scholars believe that Galatians was Paul's very first epistle. It's either Galatians or First Thessalonians, but at any rate, it's one of the first 
epistles of Paul. So early on uh, in Paul's writings, even because of Colossians and Ephesians, we think weren't written by Paul, but probably by some of his later disciples, but I digress. Um, in his very first, if not the first, the second epistle that Paul ever wrote, the Galatians, he also talks about non-duality and the illusion of separation. In Galatians 3, 27 to 28, he says, um, there is now no Jew or Greek, slave or free. There is no male or female, for we are all one in Christ Jesus, right? So this idea of oneness that we have with Christ. So I, again, I find all this really, really fascinating. And I hope you find it fascinating. If not, well, okay. If, if nothing else, you learn something about the Gospel of Thomas. And uh, if you are curious, though, and you'd like to join us in our journey, you'd like to, you can easily catch up to the sayings uh, of what we're going through in the Gospel of Thomas by joining the Inner Circle. And uh, like I said, you can do that at patreon.com slash Keith Giles uh, and sign up for, I think it's $4 a month. And you'll also unlock my newsletter and a whole bunch of other cool stuff. I post interviews that I do there uh, with people, things that are available only on the Patreon page for subscribers. Again, patreon.com slash Keith Giles. And if you, again, you can, that's where you can go and sign up for the Inner Circle. You can also do it at Patheos. Go to patheos.com or actually just go to KeithGiles.com. Go to KeithGiles.com. That's my blog. And then if you click on anything that says Inner Circle, a pop-up window will, will show up and ask you to subscribe. Um, and you can subscribe there, and then you, you can read uh, the Inner Circle series there also, in addition to my regular blog. So there you go. Um, that's a quick and dirty catch-up on what is the Gospel of Thomas, why it's important, or at least why it's worth looking into. And I have loved it. I have really been fascinated by uh, going through this this text. And yeah, you know, my opinion of Thomas has really changed. I can say now that I do think um, there is something here. There is some wisdom here for anyone who's curious about this idea of the kingdom being within us, the idea of us being in Christ and Christ being in us and everyone else. Um, it's pretty amazing stuff. So uh, I'm excited. I'm really loving this series. And eventually, of course, I will collect all of these uh, articles that I'm writing every week and those will be collected and put into a book down the road eventually. But you get to read it one week one week at a time, one chapter at a time uh, through the Inner Circle if you're curious. All right. Well, thank you again so much for joining me on Second Cup with Keith. Uh, this has been a lot of fun. If you have any ideas for future episodes, please contact me. Let me know. You can reach me on uh, Instagram, on Twitter, on Facebook. Uh, shoot me an email, a private message. Let me know you enjoy the podcast. Please like and share it if you do, if this this or any other Second Cup episode has been a blessing to you. I would really appreciate it if you would share that on social media and just leave a note like, hey, this was really great. Check this out. Uh, it really helps the podcast to grow. And it is growing. Uh, my producer has been giving me numbers and the podcast has really taken off. And that's because of you, all of you. I really appreciate it. Uh, also, rate and review if you can. That really helps people find the podcast. Also, if they're looking for podcasts like this one. Uh, are there podcasts like this one? Hmm, I don't know. But at least, you know, <laughs> uh, podcasts that talk about these sorts of ideas and themes. And uh, anyway, thank you again for so much for, for listening to Second Get with Keith. I will see you next time. God bless. Bye-bye.